Nelly. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 370. Jason Lingren is with me and Jim Gale has joined us. And we're going to be talking about food, forest, abundance. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. And good afternoon. All right. Let's maximize this before I lose internet. Welcome, Jim. Thank you, Crow. Thank you, Jason. I'm looking forward to sharing the solutions to the biggest problems in our world. And they're, they're happening fast. They are happening fast. And wait till global warming catches up to all the nonsense we're enduring right now. <laughs> no, no, it's climate change this week. Didn't anyone get the memo? Well, on a positive note, I think they finally discovered where those stones and Stonehenge came from. So there is hope in the world. Uh, I'm being facetious. <laughs> Anyhow, um, let's jump right in. Where do you want to start here, Jim? Well, I'd like to share with everybody that uh, Victor Hugo's quote is a good frame for this. There's one thing stronger than all of the armies of the world, and that is an idea whose time has come. And when we unpack that a little bit, that statement implies that the idea already exists. And in fact, everybody I've ever met can describe the idea in glorious detail. The idea is the Garden of Eden not from a religious place, we all know that religions have been used as tools of enslavement, but from a logical place, from a functional place. Having food growing everywhere is the solution to mass extinction, deforestation, cancer, diabetes, heart disease, and all of the forms of tyranny. All right, there's, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack there, but I'm with <laughs> it. I am with you. Um, the idea of, a, of an idea coming to its point of fruition I don't think it's deniable at this point, but look at the other side of the coin right now. We see an idea that's been planned for Lord knows how long, uh, probably playing off the influences of the sky clock, but look how effective it's been. So let's let's jump in here. Uh, are we going to touch on, uh, on the uh, global warming idea at all while we're in here? We sure can. We know that it's an absolute control narrative. It's all about control. And that's what governmente is. Govern means to manage and control and mente means mind. So in permaculture, we learn to look at the problem and then reverse engineer and ask, what is the solution? The problem, as Henry Kissinger so eloquently uh, described, is if you want to control nations, control oil. If you want to control people, control food. That was not the ramblings of a psychopath. That was the strategy from the guy that was in charge of implementing the strategy. Who just happened to be a psychopath. Yes, both. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We should probably just take a moment here to define what is permaculture for people that might not know. Permaculture stands for, originally it was permanent agriculture, and now it's evolved to permanent culture. And basically that implies that when we grow food locally and regeneratively without poisons, then we can have a sustainable culture. Right now we have a radically unsustainable culture and it's from the top down, not the bottom up. There's not a population problem. There's not a climate change problem. There's a control problem. There's a slave problem. And we're starting to wake up to that fact. Yeah, uh, I think it's not going to be long before we realize there's a lot fewer of us. I think that's already starting to be correct. I think it's being covered up. But as our systems break down, uh, part of the reasoning I have applied to what's going to break the systems down is there's just no people to run the systems. And that's for a number of reasons, not just mortality. But mortality is certainly going to play into it, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, I think Hollywood, which is part of the control grid, I think they're always programming us to, to kind of 
idea it into the future, like this idea of the end game. And that's what this is. This is the last chance. We are waking up at an exponential rate. And so therefore they have to control us and they're going to do everything in their power. But I am certain that spirit always wins. Life always finds a way, doesn't it? That's actually lifted from Jurassic Pork. But uh, I, I recently took an interest in, in the movie Harry Potter, which I never really did, didn't read the books. Uh, my wife was watching it, and I picked up on a couple things that dawned on me all at once. Of course, this is no different than the Marvel movies. This is a pre-echo, but to put a fine point on the programming, this was intended for children. And when you go back to those first movies, these are young children in the movie relating to parents of children and children. As this narrative goes along, it gets darker and darker and darker and overwhelming death idea is completely the whole game in the last two movies, even in the last three movies. And what we see is it's a pre-echo of what's going on. Um, and so I just want to underscore that it's not questionable what Hollywood's been up to. It's sure not. I was watching a show the other day with my daughter and it was a Disney show. And I asked myself the question, what is the program that is being conveyed to my daughter in this show? And as soon as I asked the question, the answer was just abundantly clear. They were celebrating a birthday party with hot dog and cake, right? Uh -huh. Hot dogs and cake. Well, that's what Kissinger was talking about when he said, if you want to control people control food because hot dogs and cakes celebrated as the best thing in the world leads to diabetes and cancer and all of the illnesses, which then lead to the whole situation we're in today. We can actually follow that narrative. I am old enough to remember some of the very earliest black and white advertisements. I think it was bird's eye. Jason will correct me because this would have been in our Tavistock episodes where all of a sudden we've got this new modern miracle. It's called the TV dinner. Now the whole family can pony up in front of the TV to receive their programming while they're eating this nutritious bird's eye TV dinner. Ah, that would be the lovely Swanson, actually. Ah, it was Swanson. Okay, there it is. Uh, I know bird's eye was one of the early ones, but I think you're right. But what we find is places that are completely involved in government uh, have been tied to these things all along, particularly Hollywood, to the point where when Jason and I covered them, we could show there was some dude at the last step of production, who did the little tweaks and word swaps and the ideas that he thought needed to be in put in right before it went to film last step. So these, these things are really not questionable. And it's true. You know, when you when you consider what makes American culture, if, if I asked you what makes American culture, if you want to be honest about it, it's television and movies, isn't it? Isn't that American it's what we consume. And you're absolutely right. It's television, movies, and it's any industry or any system that we become a part of. It could be the military. It could be the church. And yes, they all have their own cultures and, uh, and they're all about control. Uh, it's, it's even at its very base, you can identify things that even make it so much worse. And that is the loss of variety because to control things, the first thing you want to do is remove variety. We've done demonstrations about cars. It's easy to use cars to show the removal of variety in this country. Um, but when you hear people start to use these words that are peculiar to that news show, this political idea, that religious platform, uh, what you're seeing is the programming out of variety. That's exactly right. And the same people that are programming out that variety are programming out the variety of seeds that we have. 
And variety in seed is the foundation of strength of our world, right? By variety, diversity is strength. And it creates redundancy in a system. So you've got Gates out there wanting to have one type of seed for four types of plants that feed everybody. And it's actually gone that way over the last 40, 50 years at a rate where now I I believe it's six companies control 90 plus percent of the world's food. And they're all controlled by two entities, BlackRock and Vanguard. Yeah. When people, you know, I, this started for me years and years ago when I wanted to know where apples originated. And I always remember it as Afghanistan or that region. I don't know if it's true, but the reason uh, I got interested is because of the idea of Johnny Appleseed. And I started to realize all these varieties of apples that used to be in this country. But when that variety is gone, if you can't reestablish it with seed, There's not much to be done here, right? It took thousands and thousands and thousands upon thousands of years for that seed variety to arrive where it had been. Yep, it sure did. You know, I love pointing to the Amazon rainforest as a model for what's possible. The Amazon was a designed food forest, a human settlement 5,000 years ago. That's what archaeologists with their LIDAR and their fancy equipment have now come to hypothesize. And it makes complete sense. And as it relates to a friend of mine, Chad Johnson, who's one of the best designers in the world, up in northern Minnesota on the tip of Lake Superior, he's got a food forest. In, he's created it over the last five years that is so expansive that animals are coming into his food forest and then bringing the seeds out into the forest surrounding it. And he's estimated that he's, because of his food forest being there, thousands of new plants and edibles are in the miles surrounding his food forest. So if we just take out the poisons and the poison producers and turn our energy towards regenerative solutions, this is the next logical step. It will cover the earth. People don't really comprehend how quickly we went from passable, okay, maybe even acceptable or good in some cases, to just totally bottom of the barrel, worst you can do growing things. Here in Rhode Island, where I am, when I was a child, um, I used to have summer jobs and we worked in potato fields. Uh, I worked in commercial fishing, but those potatoes were organically grown in my early life back in the late 60s. Uh, That is long gone. And what has happened is all that crap they put to grow in all the fields, when it rains, it runs off and it gets down into the marshes, which are the basically the nurseries for life in our area, these marshes are, and then it starts to affect the coastline. It's gotten so bad that the variety of food that I took for granted when I was a child, I would go down to the beach. I wouldn't go home for over a month. And if I wanted food, I didn't even have to work. I could get a fish. I could get a lobster. It was easy to feed myself. Now, not so much. And this is the result, I think, that you're pointing at of this kind of poisonous production cycle. You're absolutely right. The the poisons are coming at us from every direction. And there may be directions that I'm not even aware of. I'm aware of the fluoride and the chemtrails and all of that different stuff. I ask myself every day, in what other way am I ingesting poisons that I'm not currently aware of? And all of a sudden, a new thought will pop in. I'm like, oh my gosh, right? So here's what I think. I think that we are spirit playing a divine game. And the win of the game is literally the Garden of Eden. And 
if the other side wins, and maybe that's just a program of our own creation, then it's the death of everything, right? But we are going to get another chance at this. And that's my only concern is I might not have acted fast enough in this game, <laughs> but I've learned a lot. And the next one I'll do even better if we don't win it this time. So I think people in city centers are always going to have the toughest time because you might not even be able to find a tree. If you live in a densely populated city, there's very little nature. But as I've mentioned recently, David Avocado Wolf stopped in to visit me for the first time. Um, he's an expert at what's edible and what's not. And I took him for a walk down the beach, which takes up about all of 15 minutes. And I think there were almost 10 things he identified that we could eat. We found mushrooms, rose hips, mustard. Uh, he was even pulling seaweed um, that I'd taken for granted all my life. And he considered that it might be nori. Um, and it underscores how much is here that we don't even consider usable. It's absolutely incredible. I was talking with Les Stroud, the survivor man the other day, and he's got a great series about wild foraging. I saw and that. Same thing. There is literally food growing everywhere. And we've been this understanding this knowledge has been programmed out of us. It has, um, the light has been shown towards these structures through our schooling and all the industries that are all pillars of control. So then the solution is when we catalyze a shift in consciousness that leads to mass adoption of the most logical thing that we could do for ourselves and our families. And that is turn 20, 30, 40, 50% of the 40 million acres of American lawn into regenerative edible landscape. That's actually less maintenance than a lawn. Yeah. Lawns are some of the worst, worst things, you know, I actually happen. I don't, I watch almost no TV, but I do take care of my mother and I caught less Strouds. I guess it's been going on longer than I was aware, uh, but I've caught some of the new ones. And in one example that I was watching, cause I took an interest in what he was doing, he's foraging and finding all kinds of things to eat. I think it was a Douglas fir tree. You know how much food is on a single Douglas fir tree? Um, and who considers that a pine tree is going to provide food for you? Um, these are pretty important things to know in times like these. They sure are. I'm really excited to be in communications with Les. I, I got a lot to learn from that man. He reminds me of David Avocado Wolf. You know, I took him down. There's this one plant I've had my eye on. I, it, it bloomed and it was this gorgeous white bloom. And it was just the best smelling thing I've ever smelled in my life. So I've been keeping my eyes on the seeds and I stopped there with him. I said, do you know what this is? Well, of course he gets back to me a day later and identifies it, but it's so funny. I was paying so much attention to the blooms. I thought it was part of this tree. It's actually a vine that was in the tree. Um, it goes to show when we walk through nature, we pay, even when we're trying someone like me trying to pay attention, we're just missing so much. Yes. Yes, we are. The magic, the abundance is all around us. And so to, to back to the solution is to go stand with nature. And this is, this is science. And I'm not talking about the crazy science out there right now, the religious science, but the real science is, and, and you don't even need science to tell you this. You go look at a flower, you look at a butterfly, you go stand with your bare feet on the ground and you feel better. There's some type of resonance there that lifts us away from and out of the fear and the shame and the rage that is plaguing our society by design. It almost feels to me like there's going to be a line in the sand that you got to make it to right now where there's yeah. kind of a proving ground. Um, and well, at least that's the excuse being used by the people implementing these systems. Um, those who make it to the other side, I guess, from their point of view, deserve to be here. Uh, I do not subscribe to these ideas. I value all life in this world, but it feels like where there's a period of time 
that you've got to make it to. And so many obstacles are going to be thrown in the way. Um, if you were going to use the solutions that you're offering, where would you start for the average person who's not living on concrete and blacktop? So I would start in what I consider zone one from a cultural perspective, and that's the, um, the backyard, right? Take some of your lawn and start planting seeds, start planting fruit trees and berry bushes. And when you follow the simple permaculture principles, you know, stacking functions and layering the soil, then the abundance that can come from your backyard is more than 99 point something percent of people can even imagine. Um, because it stacks, you know, you've got your roots and tubers underground. And then, by the way, sweet potatoes and potatoes right now, everybody should be planting them indoors or outdoors. They're one of the best preparedness foods in the world. Um, and then they go all the way up, like you just mentioned, to the smaller bushes, the bigger bushes, the smaller fruit trees, the bigger fruit trees, and then the vines that go through them. In fact, every fence should be a food fence. What would you say is the easiest, I don't know, maybe top three? that people could start with something just to kind of get their feet wet if they're a little intimidated by this? Well, so what we do at Food Forest Abundance is we have a team of designers and we go in and we meet with the customer um, virtually over the phone, typically sometimes in person, and we design their space to be the most functional, to, to produce the most yield with the least amount of effort. And this is something I like to get across to people. You can, I, I planted a food forest at Gauss Landing about 18 months ago. And for the first few months, we had to water it maybe three or four times when it wasn't raining. We've done nothing for the last 14 months and it's exploding with food. So it's literally zero effort. If you want it to be a landscaped, more fancy looking food forest, then you might have to spend a half an hour a week um, doing things to clear the trails because a properly installed food forest will grow very fast. So your main thing is just harvesting the food and keeping the access ways clear. So when you come in and design a space, um, is the idea that you're going to hand the knowledge or do you provide some of the seeds and other things? For the design, we create a 45-page food forest landscape blueprint, and that gives all the details, including the custom design for that individual home and family. And, um, and then if they don't want to DIY it, then we bring in a team and we do the install. It's, a, it's basically a landscaping business, but it's a very functional landscaping business. Are there examples of what you're talking about that are free to people that might have become unemployed over the last 18 months? There are so many ways to do this. When you say examples, examples of food forests that we've installed or... A way to get on the road without having the, yes. the ability to hire someone to help you get there. A hundred percent. If you're going to buy food, next time you buy food, go buy some organic, whatever your favorites are, cucumbers and tomatoes and save the seeds. So you can literally start a mega garden with zero extra money out of pocket just by saving those seeds and then going on YouTube and finding out how to propagate that particular seed. And you might fail at first, but it's not going to cost you anything but a few minutes of your time. But once you start learning it and let the plants be your teachers, it's incredible the connection that you'll get from that. Well, I noticed you mentioned potatoes and the first time that, well, I, I worked in potato fields when I was a kid uh, here in Rhode Island or a child, I should say, maybe. Um, but you know, when I was in Lemon Grove, California, I grew those purple potatoes. I did exactly what you said. We went to a Henry's, I think it was. We bought a bag of purple potatoes. Um, we used the seed 
from there and we planted them. Great thing about potatoes is what we ended up doing is when we were going to have dinner, we wanted four of them. So I'd go reach my hand under the dirt. I'd pull four of them. And instead of needing storage or refrigerator or anything else, all the other potatoes just kept growing until the next time I needed potatoes. That is just fantastic. And nature has so much abundance that it's it's incomprehensible to imagine how we got where we got. And that's why I do think it's important to realize that there is a problem. There is a poison producer, a tyrant. But then again, turning our energy away from the tyrant and the poisons to enjoying our own lives, to faith and courage, and then self-reliance has to be part of that. In your estimation, so let's just take the United States as the example. There's a number of zones here, but basically what it comes down to, whether you're in the frost zone or whether you're really far far south. So in places where it snows, places where it doesn't, um, what would be some of the highest yield things that you could commonly get a hold of to plant? So fruit trees and berry bushes are my favorites. They take a little bit of time to really start producing. Fruit trees might take uh, three to eight years, depending on what the fruit is. Berry bushes might take a year and a half to three years, depending on what they are. Now, if you want a faster yield, then the sweet potato, the potato, the starches, yucca, cassava, taro root, any of those are going to be usually within a year. Papaya, bananas, maybe a year to 15 months um, are great. And uh, yeah, that's what I'd start with. And then the, the perennial spinaches. At Gauss Landing, we're building an off-grid community here to demonstrate how easy and how wonderful it is to be completely free of the grid. And everything is needed is going to be produced on-site, food, water, and energy. And we've got perennial spinaches of about five different varieties growing everywhere where you can walk outside and just grab a salad any time of year. Do you have a freeze or a frost in your area? Rarely we do. And when that happens, then they'll get hit back. And then two or three months later, they'll be popping again. All right. We should define for people the difference between annual and perennial. Usually when you see the word annual, it means the plant will live for one season and needs to be reestablished after that season. Perennial implies that each season it will come back without human intervention. And by the way, there are a lot of things like there's a thing called Asian or African basil that's supposed to be annual. I've been growing it perennially for years, but there's some things that you could grow in a pinch that turn around very quickly. One that I'm aware of is radishes. You can grow radishes in less than 30 days. Yep. And, and also microgreens. Um, I'm a big fan of microgreens because they can be growing on your counter next to your coffee pot. They take the same amount of time as coffee to create, and they're so nutrient dense. So describe what we're talking. It's, it's a bit like, I think most people will be familiar with the idea of sprouts, right? So yep. explain how that's done uh, because that is a quick turnaround. Yes, that's really quick. So uh, you, I, I bought a 10 by 20 trays online with mats. You can have hemp mat or cocoa coir mat or soil. Soil is going to be more nutrient dense than these other things. And you buy the seeds, whether it be broccoli or kale or radish or pea. My favorite combination is a broccoli kale mix along with a pea mix because the peas are very voluminous. It's a lot of mass. And then the broccoli and kale, the nutrient density of that salad will blow away anything you've ever had at a grocery or at a restaurant or even at the grocery store. Well, we should talk about some of the common things that are probably growing in people's yards as we speak. We've all always covered the dandelion because as far as I know, every part of that plant is edible. And where I am, my entire lawn fills up with dandelions if I don't mow it. Yep. 
Are there other examples that are similar that would just be growing all around the place? So everything we're doing at Galt's, the ground covers, they're all functional in some way. Like a lot of people don't realize that flowers are an incredibly functional uh, part of a food forest. A lot of them are edible. I love the cranberry hibiscuses and things like that. Uh, The clovers, uh, pigeon pea, perennial peanut, they'll fix nitrogen and they'll provide food and they look beautiful and they provide um, food for pollinators because you're going to want to bring the butterflies and the bees into the system. Um, So edible ground covers, depending on what zone you are, are a no-brainer. Well, I'm in Rhode Island, so it freezes big time up here. And what I've noticed is, and I had no idea, hibiscus grows all over around here. If I'm not mistaken, that flower from any hibiscus, is that correct, is edible? Well, all the ones I've known of are edible and they taste great too. Yeah, they smell good and they taste good. So if you're going to put a small garden in a small space, um, I was going to ask you, how do you do it? Do you use a mound idea? You're not using rows, I'm guessing, in a very small space. How do you go about it? So it depends on so many factors, but you can stack it. Like I love going vertical. You can do either hydroponics, aquaponics, or soil. I have done a lot of hydroponics and aquaponics, and I'm moving more towards soil for the functionality of it and the return on investment of it. So you can create like a bookshelf situation along your fence or along a wall, a south-facing wall in your house if you're here in North America, and you can stack every row with different types of plants using some of the, you know, on the corners, I like tomatoes and cucumbers because they can grow down and they can vine out and spread out. Um, On the bottom, maybe some squash and pumpkin. And then in the middle, you've got different types of lettuces. That way you can have a lot of food in an area that would be otherwise unused. So let's talk a little bit about soil. How do you prepare at a bare minimum if you have no budget soil? And if you do have a small budget, how do you prepare soil? So the most important thing that most people miss is mulch and or wood chips, which is just different. It's thicker mulch. You want to cover the soil. You don't ever want this soil exposed to the sun and the wind and the rain that will destroy it. So when you put four to six inches of wood chips on top of it, you're creating that microbiome layer. And that's where the magic happens. Then if you can add some chicken manure, some mushroom compost, you can even go and get the the black cow manure and spread it out. Now you're really kickstarting that soil and you're making it expand a lot faster and create that biodiversity a lot more quickly. Well, heck, I live not far anywhere in Rhode Island. It's not far from the ocean. But three days ago, all the seaweeds or a bunch of the variety of seaweed let go and said it's winter and they all washed up on shore. When I was down there with David Avocado Wolf, I had never even thought of it. He's all, look at all this beautiful fertilizer you have right here. (laughs) And it dawned because you think of it as, oh, this is salty. So, you know, that's going to be a problem. But, you know, everybody knows in Ireland and other places, that's exactly how they did it. Um, So if you live near the water and you can get seaweed, that's a pretty good soil starter, isn't it? It's fantastic. In fact, I'm using um, a a diluted seawater, which is loaded with minerals in my beds. Also, biochar worm castings are number one. Um, In fact, we just cleared out an area of the lake to put a dock in, and we had this huge mound, tons of lake weeds and plants we piled up, and we're burying them in rows where we're then on top of those rows, we're putting our our centropic rows of a variety of different edibles, and that's an incredible foundation. 
You know, it's funny. Um, I have like a, an old 60s blacktop driveway that's cracked. And of course, the grass got in there. When my father was alive, he used to use weed killer. And I finally got him to stop it. But the grass gets in there so hard, it's not easy to get. So I got the brilliant idea. You know what? I'm going to drive down to the beach with a bunch of gallon jugs. I'm going to fill up that seawater and I'm going to come pour it on that grass and stop it. So I get these jugs of seawater and I pour them on all the cracks with all the grass jammed in it. That's not easy to weed whip or get out any other way. And I come back two days later, there's no change. I'm all, well, there's salt in the seawater. So I just didn't put enough. I do this three times and finally they browned a little bit. <laughs> no time did they die. And that's when I learned uh, all how nutritious the seawater is. But interestingly enough, I ended up getting a weed whip and doing it by hand and getting them out. And I took the remaining water that I had and poured it in the cracks. The grass didn't grow back the following year, which I thought was interesting. But my point is, I figured the salt in the seawater would kill the grass. Doesn't work that way. Right. There's so much nutrients in seawater and at a, with dilution, and you can look this up online, then it's actually an incredible um, base for a, a garden. So what, what kind of dilution are we talking about? Let's say I got a gallon of seawater. How would you go about diluting that? So I put uh, about a cup in a gallon and then I spray it on maybe once or twice a year. Spray it on the ground? Yes. How come you don't, you, could you water it? Could I just take a cup out of that gallon that you've diluted down and pour, you know, say water a basil with that? Yes, you could. There's a fine line there and I play with everything. This is an art. Like we're talking about such a magical system, nature, that it's an art more than a science. There's still infinitely more to learn than there is already known. Well, here's what I noticed because I ended up using iodized table salt to limit where a, uh, a mint could grow. For people that don't know, mint's like running bamboo. It's got a rhizome. It'll take over your world if you let it. And so I took, after I had done the salt from the water uh, in the ocean, I learned, I realized, well, I've got this real terrible salt that nobody eats called iodized. So I mixed that thick in water and I put a ring around where I didn't want the, the mint to escape and it worked. But the other thing I was thinking of, as I asked you what the dilution would be, is if you watered it and the dilution was a little too strong and you noticed it starting to droop, you could just get a garden hose out and wash it right through, right? That's exactly right. And Jeff Lawton demonstrated this in Greening the Deserts of Jordan, where he created swales and started sucking water or storing water in the ground and created a food forest in one of the most inhospitable salt-laden salt flats in the world, just to demonstrate what was possible. Now, I got to look at this. Who, who did this? Now I got to find this. Jeff Lawton. It's Greening the Deserts of Jordan. Wow. Jim, do you want to give any of your backstory so people know who we're talking to here, just in, in case they're completely unfamiliar? Sure. I'll give a little backstory, and I'm really excited to jump forward to the miracles that are happening all around this movement. So I, um, I was a wrestler. I was a four-time All-American, a national champ, thanks to writing goals and creating a vision of myself in the future, which taught me that was probably the most important lesson I ever learned is to focus forward, focus in the present and then be guided forward. Um, thank you, Dr. Gary rushing for having me write my goals back when I was 19. I then traveled the world, lived in about 47 countries, lived in Africa with the Maasai and Chiang Mai. And I actually spent quite a bit of time at bond university in surfers paradise, Australia, where I wrote my goals for the second time I was 29 
And um, my goal is to have $3 million in three years. And I was a bartender with a teaching degree. So when I told my friends that, they told me I was fucking crazy. Anyway, three and a half years later, did about a billion three in mortgage closings. I bought a small motor yacht, lived on the ocean for a year. And that's when I discovered, um, well, then I moved to Costa Rica. And that's where I discovered permaculture. And at the same time, I had had my first two daughters. So I started looking at the world through a what's the world going to be like in 20 years lens. And I, I started and I took the red pill at that time as well. So I went through this period of cognitive dissonance and struggle. Like, how are we going to change this? And uh, I believe very much in, um, in uh, that guy from Think and Grow Rich. Um, his quote, whatever the mind of man can conceive and believe it can achieve. Well, I can absolutely conceive and I know that we're going to change the world, that we are going to catalyze a shift towards mass adoption of these principles. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear that what's happened here has run its course and that's part of what's going on in the world. But you touched on it earlier. There's a mass awakening and an awakened mind will not be governed in the same way that we have become used to being governed. And for multiple reasons, that's what's going on. And that's another reason why I feel like there's a line in the sand. Yeah. Um, you, again, you have to live in the now, you have to, um, but you should project out and you should start to draw a line to where you're going to. But what did we not touch on so far? Well, a couple of things. One thing is this this idea of faith. I look at the everything that comes to me as clues that will help me piece the puzzle together, right? And the puzzle is how do we change the world and create the Garden of Eden everywhere? That's the end goal. So the clue of faith, which I'm not a really, I'm a very spiritual person. I'm not a religious person. And so I started playing with all these terms from kind of, okay, where's the logic in that? And as soon as I dropped the fear, and the worry and the concern. And by the way, this is after investing almost all of my money in my education, aka losing my ass, I let it go. And I said, I'm going to just choose faith. I'm going to completely eliminate every fear thought. And I was able to do that over time. It took me some time. But since then, the magic that's been happening, and I'll give you a little breakdown of that. We launched on Earth Day with Dell Bigtree. He he shined his light on us, um, did a 33-minute segment on the highwire. And since then, we have now served customers in now 16 countries, about 43 states. We have had a TV show pilot that's finished with the producer of The Crocodile Hunter and um, one of my favorite actors who happened to call me back-to-back days. Like, it's miraculous what's happening right now. This is going viral. You don't feel like you're getting in bed with the enemy. Ah, we're, we're destroying the enemy's bed. <laughs> yes, they, they, cannot, they cannot have control when we eat healthy and when we think freely. Well, it's interesting that the Les Stroud show, um, you know, I, I look at everything with a pretty jaded eye, particularly if it's coming from TV. But a show like that, in my view, the benefits far outweigh anything that else that could be possibly inlaid to it. I mean, it's almost purely... Here I am walking in nature and look, see this thing that you've seen a million times, you can eat it. And he, he takes it a step further. He has a chef with him um, that tries to make interesting foods out of these forage things. But the point is you've already been cued in. Like I was not aware that I could go get something off a Douglas fir other than a pine cone and eat it. Um, So maybe there will be a shift, but in the short term, I think a lot of people, that associate information from television are so jaded that it's maybe a bridge too far for many. 
Yeah, for many it is. And I'm very aware of that. I'm aware that many people are not going to make it over the next five years. They're going to die or they're going to leave their bodies. And then they're going to pop back in the spirit and be like, oh my God, that was a fun ride. I want to go again. <laughs> so what my job <laughs> you, is. That's, you think that's so, so in your view, everyone's getting recycled. And as soon as you pop out, you don't, you don't view it in the same way. I, I think so, but who knows, right? I'm just guessing. It helps me not cry when I see the kids getting poisoned. So therefore, it's a, a strategy that helps me function in this world. Because if I thought it was any other way, I, I don't know if I could deal with it. You know, that kind of changed. Thinking about how children were fed at school, uh, for me, the whole thing changed in seventh grade for me, where school food had been pretty standard. And the way that I remembered, it wasn't that horrible and processed all the time. Um, but in seventh grade, if you had a buck, you could get a couple of those burritos and a grape drink. And there was the departure. That's how long ago it's been. And I've, I've heard from so many people that don't want their kids eating what the school is shoveling out. Oh, good grief. Absolutely. And it all comes from the, those same six companies, which is the same six families that control everything. So yeah, and, and then part of the scale, because I'm a, I like thinking in scale, like how do we literally create the system whereby we can serve people? Now, we just opened up New Zealand and Thailand and Germany, and we now have food forest cooperative partners that are serving all of these countries and all of these states. Um, you know, they say in the franchise world, if you want a successful franchise, if you can sell four franchises your first year, you're doing pretty good. We've sold 50 in the last few months, and it's the tip of the iceberg. Now we're putting food force in all over the world, and every one of those customers want to demonstrate what's possible. So everyone become a seed in their community that is radically expansive. So Jim, I'm really curious, can we go back in time a little bit and do like your first adventure into all this? Uh, obviously, you're being very successful with it, with the franchises and all that. What was your first foray into this? Where at? What did you guys do? All that good stuff. Yeah. So my first foray, so I was living in Costa Rica and I had bought a few properties and turned them and sold them. And it was 2006, seven and things were rocking. And then I bought a big property and I wanted to develop a golf course. I wanted to turn a cattle pasture into a golf course. And my vision for the golf course, in fact, the first thing we did was create a fruit tree nursery on property. And we hired a guy to propagate fruit trees. So my vision was that every up and down every fairway were thousands and thousands of fruit trees where you could be just walking down and picking berries and fruits everywhere, right? Well, then 2008, nine comes and the economy completely tanks. And so I had another piece of land about 700 acres up in the mountains, which is four wheel drive access. And I'm like, well, let's, let's change the way we're doing things. Let's change the product to match the times. So we created a um, community called Osa Mountain Village and another called Serenity Gardens uh, Eco Village. And the first thing we did at both of those places was plant hundreds and then thousands of fruit trees and edible landscapes, permaculture design style. And I learned so much about people in that experience. I learned that when you're creating a community up in the middle of nowhere, 
I didn't know what I didn't know. They say the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Well, I paved one of those roads. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, anybody who came with money, I'd say, great, thanks for coming. And here's your house, you know. And what happened in 2012 is the election cycle kicked in. And people who were good friends, who had never argued a day in their life, best friends, all of a sudden started to hate each other. And I was the developer and resident and looked to as kind of the security guard, which I did not want to be, but I, I like solving problems. So people would call me up and say, these two old men are fighting. One's got a machete. The other one hasn't taken a shower for two weeks. Or, you know, that my dog, this dog just ate that dog, or there's worms on the lettuce. Like literally that, those are things that actually happened worms on the lettuce and I get a, a, a complaint call. I'm like, it's organic, wash it off. Right? So I learned a lot about people and I learned that creating new communities isn't the answer. We have to bring sustainable solutions, permaculture style solutions to existing communities and the backyard, the American lawn is the place to start. Yeah. I actually really like that idea. When you kept saying fruit trees, is it possible to buy them kind of sort of ready to go and just plant them as opposed to starting from seed and waiting God knows how long for them to grow? And then they would actually be uh, sprouting fruit as soon as possible because I actually have a sizable size backyard that I would love to slowly but surely turn into a garden. But uh, I'm pretty clueless, so I might actually be a, a good guinea pig to be throwing ideas at you here because I don't really know much of what to do in the first place. Awesome. Well, everything starts with design. When a permaculture designer who's gone through a lot of time and energy to learn what plants go well and how to use the sun and the wind and the rain, um, it'll really increase the yield and decrease the failure rate. So yes, to your answer, yes, almost every fruit tree we buy is between three and six feet tall. You can get them at Lowe's or Home Depot even for 60 bucks, maybe 150 bucks, and they're going to have a few fruit by the next year. Within three years, they're going to be producing in abundance as long as they're growing properly. So yeah, we almost never start fruit trees by seed. Grafting is also another way where you can take, let's say, a citrus tree, and you can have four or five different types of citrus growing on one tree. That's pretty significant. Isn't that nuts? Do you have a recommendation of uh, which ones to start with? I mean, apples, I guess, are a pretty common one, and, and that can grow just about anywhere as far as the United States, right? Yes, and there are literally infinite variety of different types of fruits out there and edible plants, medicinal plants. So it depends on your zone, and it depends on your likes. But apples are pretty good everywhere. What zone are you in? I am on the North Shore of New Orleans, so oh, wet and hot most of the time, although we're pretty cool right now. Yeah, no, you're doing pretty good. You can do a lot of things. I mean, tons of peaches. You can probably get away with a bunch of citrus there. Um, but really start with the, the design process because then that's when the, it's, it blows people's minds when they realize what's possible. So I'd like to actually get into doing the design and all that. But uh, since we're so close to getting into hour two, I'll just hang on for that. Let's do something interesting for the end here. What would you say is the most exciting or uh, amazing thing that you've done so far with everything you're working on just to kind of get people going, wow, I'd love to work towards achieving that? I've become more conscious. I've become more present. And now instead of efforting, and pushing forward. And I'll get to more brass tacks, more physicality stuff. 
But just to center myself and to be able to feel my hands and to hear the vibration of the universe and take a breath and feel my lungs expanding, that has been the most important thing that I've ever done. And, and then, then these messages come, these downloads of information are constantly coming when I silence my mind. So that's the number one tip I give everybody is let go of the fear and stay present and then focus the energy forward. So the miracles, like the, the synchronicities that have been happening over the last six months, the people that have come aboard, the movie stars who have called up and said, I want a food forest at my house. One of the most exciting things, I guess, from a physical perspective, like what are we actually doing is one of the things in our business model, our give back is to create food forests in public areas at schools and churches and food banks and community centers. And we pay for those and we help the community come in and actually do these projects. So it becomes a community day where they can plant dozens, if not hundreds of edible plants in a way that will serve their community where their great, great grandkids can be eaten for free. Yeah, I'm totally down with that idea. And uh, as you mentioned earlier, there sadly might be uh, a lot less people wandering around. We can start making abundance now so that uh, maybe with those who are still here in the next year, two years, three years, we've been hearing various opinions on that. And I don't want to say too much for hour one, but we'll definitely touch on this a lot more in hour two. We could start doing things right now before the economy crashes or whatever terrible things might be in our future. And I, I'm confident that these things don't have to happen. I think that absolutely, if we work towards fighting back, we can. I don't think it's too late, especially if we're talking about the United States. While this country is still kind of sort of existing the way it always has, the structure's kind of still there. It's just very corrupt at the moment. But yeah, I think that if we start laying out some groundwork to uh, where people can start and start building up to that, that would be great. And just like you were saying, having a garden, having a place to go, stuff like that, uh, grounding, just walking around in your, with your bare feet and, and on the earth and the grass and all that, it's so therapeutic. People don't even realize it. Like, put the screens down, get away from the damn computer, like all that stuff. Go outside, go be part of nature. And it doesn't even have to be a giant uh, oasis. I mean, whatever you've got to work with is exactly what I completely agree with you on. Yeah. Yes. I mean, be conscious and plant seeds. Seeds can be ideas that lead to beautiful things. And of course, seeds in the ground, that is the functional way to create a joyful life. All right. Looks like we're just about there. Jim, thank you so much for an awesome hour one. And uh, let's pick this up in hour two. Crow? All right, man. That was the first hour of episode 370 with Jason Lindgren and Jim Gale talking about food forest abundance or generally in, in an offhand way, the fact that most of us have access to food we never knew about or could easily shift where we're living to have access to even healthier foods. But I hope you join us over at crow777radio.com for hour two. That's C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. And I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. There it is, man. Cheers.
kind of beast of knowing. <laughs> 